When Irena Voloshina started a Slavic choir at Indiana University in 2021, she didn't realize it would be a local expression of a global political situation. But then in February of 22, Russia invaded Ukraine. All of a sudden we became in, in high demand, which was good. So we narrowed our program to like only Ukrainian repertoire. We'll hear how the choir turned into a mission for Voloshina after the invasion about a choir she was in during Russia's last invasion, and more. Then, comedian E.J. Masakampo tells us how his divorce made him a comedian. That's all coming up after this. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. The Indiana Slavic Choir, based here in Bloomington, performs folk songs about Ukrainian cultural integrity and sovereignty over their land. Producer Violet Barron sat down with its founder, Irena Voloshina, this past summer to hear how cultural heritage becomes a point of contention in war. Physically, I was like not able to sing. I just shut down, you know. I thought that, well, I'm here, I cannot physically be there in Ukraine and help people the way that they might probably need it more. But if I have this opportunity to reach international audiences and they listen to me, then I'll do this. Then this is my mission. It's all I can do and somebody has to do it. Hi, my name is Irena Voloshina, and I'm a third-year PhD student at the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. I call myself a founding artistic director of Indiana Slavic Choir. And actually, we know each other. We were both students in the folklore department, and we've been friends since that time. I came to Bloomington. I joined IU in 2020, so that was uh, during the pandemic. I did meet some people, but I felt like I really needed the community of people who like to sing together. I wanted to sing Ukrainian or Slavic folk music, and I understand that we are in Indiana and we probably don't have that many people who know that tradition well. So I thought, well, I'll then teach people how to do that. So <laughs> um, we have songs that have uh, between two and five parts. My method of teaching is we don't use sheet music. I teach uh, the way I was taught by elderly people in the villages in Ukraine. So they did not have uh, music education at all. I learned um, that music by ear and now I teach it um, by ear as well. We sing a cappella, uh, mostly polyphony, and also the timbre of voice is very specific. So it's called open throat. In Ukrainian, it's sometimes called billy holos, like white voice. Now we have like a solid group of about 20 people, 20 members. Uh, we decided to call it Indiana Slavic Choir to make it more inclusive because we know that we have students and faculty who are interested in the entire region of Eastern Europe and it's in fact um, diverse. Irina started the choir in 2021. In February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was shattering for Irina who watched the events from Bloomington. I remember um, on February 20th, 25th, we were supposed to have a performance with Estonian group, but that, you know, the invasion was just so sh shocking to me. I just could not imagine uh, being on the stage or even around other people. 
So I remember I took some time off from ensemble because just physically, well, obviously I was just devastated and uh, I could not sleep, you know, so that was just too too painful. And I remember that, well, a few weeks passed and I realized that I have responsibility. I, I have a, a community of, of people who who like respect my state, but also like they uh, rely on me. The only genre that I've I found uh, that was like relevant to me at that moment was the folk psalms. Uh, so they are religious songs that are sung during the Lent. And that was essentially the appropriate moment. It was like a, a um, March and April. So these songs are essentially about repelling, ab- about the mortality of of people. Like they give this the space to think about sins, how we are s- sinful, and what we can do for salvation of our souls. It spoke to me at the time, and I remember I, I came back. I announced that okay, like we are gonna have a um, rehearsal, and I I brought one of the psalms to that rehearsal, and we so it it sounds uh, kind of like a prayer, really beautiful. We learned it, and we've been using it a lot since then. Another thing that happened after the war started was a new awareness of an interest in Ukrainian culture. Suddenly, people in the U.S. wanted to support Ukraine in whatever way they could. One way was by highlighting its culture and its music. All of a sudden, we became in in high demand, which was good. So we narrowed our program to like only Ukrainian repertoire, and that psalm, that prayers song was uh, one of our key songs. Also a few patriotic songs and a few like um, lyrical songs too. There were a lot of events at REI uh, on on campus, uh, conferences, receptions, or some other events where we would be in, invited to sing. I also hosted a singing w- workshop with Lotus Arts Foundation. We collected some donations that I then sent to my friend from Khmelnytsky, from my uh, hometown. He is a cellist at the symphony orchestra and one of their um, members of, of the orchestra was going to war. So they were raising money to get equipment for him. So it's just another like really recent example of how I can not only raise awareness with uh, my music, but, but also raise money for the good cause. In those early months, the choir felt like a way to resist the invasion from far away. It's a really good community of people who gathered around this idea of singing together. Several people told me that it's the highlight of their week, and it was just so good to hear that there is other people actually like who have jobs and families and, and other responsibilities just um, are, are willing to come on Friday afternoon and sing, or sometimes other days when we have shows. I felt that people really saw the value in what we are doing. Irina also helped with an emergency effort to preserve and protect Ukraine's archives of heritage and culture, another thing that was at risk once Russia invaded. If you want to share what was life like for you in those few months, you said you were not sleeping well. And I remember partly it was because you were staying up all night, right, on talking to people over there, helping people connect with each other, connect with a safe place to go. I also was in touch with my friends and colleagues, um, folklorists and ethnomusicologists and and museum and heritage scholars. So they reached out to me and they were really worried about their uh, archives, the uh, digital archives of traditional music and heritage of Ukraine. So uh, together with American Folklore Society that is based at the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at IU, we created a Google folder 
where people could upload their archives so that they are safely stored there. And in case uh, the archives are damaged or destroyed or attacked in cyber attack or hacked, and that also happened, or looted or anything happens, then at least a copy would be in a safe place. Why is preserving the heritage, the digital heritage, so important? Why would that be something that you need to protect now? Well, as we all know, one of the justification of Putin's invasion was denazification of Ukraine. And it's kind of old news to us. Empires uh, tend to call national liberation movements like aggressive, ultra-nationalist, and all that, right? So uh, that label has been on Ukraine for centuries, and just physically destroying culture, and by that I mean artists, uh, musicians, writers, clergy, intellectuals, scholars. So that has been a, a practice for centuries. And uh, the fact that he phrased that we need to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, so denazification means erasing national identity of Ukrainians by destroying people physically and by destroying the heritage sites also, like museums, churches, theaters, and other places, libraries to schools, right? Many people felt that that was a direct um, aggression against Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian culture. So preserving archives felt like a very important mission and still does. Right. Yeah, I think it goes back kind of again to what was beginning to happen in the mo- like present day with the Euromaidan, right? Like, but it was in your generation, right, in the slightly younger generations, where they moved as a country to Ukrainian as the dominant, only dominant language, right? Well, I grew up in a Ukrainian-speaking family, so I uh, know Russian because Ukraine has been Russified for centuries. Ukrainian language was banned multiple times by Russian empires, USSR. The fact that we are bilingual is just the colonial legacy. It was not by choice for uh, many people. But yes, especially after the Euromaidan revolution, many people switched to Ukrainian again as a political act because they realized um, the reason why it happened so that they speak Russian, even if it's a language in the family. The songs are evidence of Ukraine's national identity and sovereignty as a people. Throughout its history, there's always been this character and this fight. Actually, one of the songs that we have in our repertoire, which means that Ukraine has been asleep for a while, so it compares Ukraine to a bird uh, that was asleep and then it woke up and it remembered that it was once free. So it spread its wings and united Ukrainian people under its wings. A really beautiful song. What's interesting about it is that it is about 100 years old. So we're talking about like 1920s, maybe 1910s, 1920s. And it's a song from the Ukrainian insurgent army. So that was a military unit who fought against Russian occupation of Ukraine. So that was in the period between fall of the Russian Empire and, and the USSR. So this is a just a, like this song itself, among many others, is a living proof of how long this war has been going on, really, for for many centuries. So I uh, and many of my fellow Ukrainians agree that this is not a Putin's war. Like he is just a product of his 
I don't know, nation, empire. <laughs> but uh, this has been going on for centuries, for centuries. So this is, if that's what we can do to give the arguments from the oral tradition, from the songs, that, hey, here is what people were singing about 100 years ago, and we are singing about the same enemy, literally. So that in itself says something about the importance of this Ukrainian resistance that's happening now. Mm-hmm. And in all of the different forms that it takes. It's almost as if folklore is significant. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. It's also very, um, you know, it's very applicable. Mm-hmm. Even if we have songs about, like, older songs about the war between Cossacks and the Turks or the Poles, or we have these genres of soldiers' songs, right, or conscript songs, they are very, very relevant. We learned a song about a mother who is sending her son to a war. How relevant is that? You know, and that song, you know, several hundred years old from Sumy region that is bordering, you know, it borders Russia and is under a constant shelling. So, you know, like, yeah, folklore is relevant. <laughs> All right, it's time for a break. Producer Violet Barron is talking with Irena Voloshna, who started the Indiana Slavic Choir, which has been singing in support of Ukraine since Russia's invasion. This isn't Voloshna's first time singing for Ukrainian independence. When Russia invaded in 2014, she was part of a choir in Ukraine that raised money to fight for independence. We'll hear about that after the break. Welcome back to Interstates. Producer Violet Barron is talking with the founder of the Indiana Slavic Choir, Irena Voloshna. Let's get back to it. From what you've told me, there's often been a political dimension to when and where you sing. I remember you telling me around the uh, 2014 war, you would go around and sing with your group, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that um, Euromaidan revolution was really shocking to all, all Ukrainians. It was just unheard of to to see how civilians are being shot on the main streets and squares in Kiev. And then the annexation of Crimea happened, and then the invasion of Donbass region happened. So that's really the beginning of Russian invasion to Ukraine. And a lot of people um, volunteered to go and fight, or they were drafted. There were lots of needs in in society. Some people I know went to war, so uh, it it was a kind of a common practice to raise money and to help uh, people with uh, ammunition, with life-proof jackets, um, helmets, and other other things, just to save their lives, essentially to protect them. So our ensemble, just like many other musicians I know, and and artists, and just other people. We would uh, raise money, so we would do some charity events. And it didn't have to be something like extraordinary. We would just sing on the main street in Khmelnytsky and just like have, have a box for donations and raise money and then um, either give it to a person. Actually, we had a guy in our ensemble who sang with us for a while and then he went to the Donbass to fight, so we raised some money for him too. We also went to some festivals to sing and we would um, donate our compensation to this cause. So uh, that was not uncommon, yeah. And why do you think that the singing was sort of, could be a tool for raising the money? Why why was this something that, that you could give and people wanted to receive for Ukraine? Well, because we sing... Ukrainian traditional music. And this music, the lyrics um, talk about the heroic past of of Ukrainians. We have religious songs. We have uh, songs from uh, traditions like um, that were um, banned uh, by the Soviets and the Russians. This music is in itself uh, an act of resistance. So it it feels very natural to connect this music with um, the ongoing resistance that's happening in Ukraine. So Irina found herself singing in choirs as a means of protest, both in Ukraine in 2014 and in the U.S. in 2022. But she says they felt like worlds apart. Here it's very different because in Khmelnytsky people understand that it's their homeland and they are protecting their own homeland or donating money to protect those who protect it. 
Here it's more because there's so much propaganda everywhere. So and we we are not having like we don't have like a political agenda necessarily, but the music becomes political, right? <laughs> so and I think it's very important to do that in in places like Indiana. This summer, Irina went to Ukraine for the first time since the war began. It was really emotional to me because until then, my experience of living through the war was, you know, online, essentially. Reading the news online, watching news online, or talking to uh, my family online, too. It was very important for me to go and just, well, see my family, of course, but also see, how, like, what life is, is there. Something, so I, I felt many things, but... um the difference between the war that started in 2014 that was like in Donbass region so it's like very like local or like regional yeah this time you cannot ignore the war you know so i uh, flew to krakow in poland we cannot fly into ukraine now because it's too dangerous when the missiles are flying and also many airports are bombed or, or destroyed or it's just unsafe. So I flew to Poland and I took a bus to go to Ukraine. I crossed the border like in, in the middle of the night. Uh, all the lights everywhere are off uh, just to prevent, you know, and well, not to be bombed essentially, to, uh, to hide an, any movement of traffic. When I was on the bus going to my hometown Khmelnytsky, we were passing by like smaller villages or towns. And usually in, in Ukraine, we have cemeteries like outside of villages or towns and often along the highways. And uh, nowadays when a hero falls, so they are buried uh, on the cemetery and the grave is, is marked with a Ukrainian flag. So it was really heartbreaking to see, you know, at the cemeteries, new, new graves with new flags waving. And even in small villages, you definitely see one or two or three or five. In bigger cities, it's, it's much a bigger number. Air raid sirens are very scary because you know that the missile is flying and somebody will probably die. So that this is just really real experience that you cannot... I could not imagine it un, until I, I experienced it. Um, I had to hide in, in bomb shelters several times. Just a week after I arrived, I woke up from loud explosions and my house was like shaking, essentially. So at 4 a.m. we we had a missile strike to um, one of the objects in my hometown, Khmelnytsky. It was very scary. Like it's you, you cannot describe it like, you know, that you can die any moment. That's that's a very strong feeling. Overall, I was just astonished by resilience of Ukrainian people, how they, despite everything, all the horrors, all, all the losses, everything, they're trying to live normal life, they're trying to enjoy life, and this joy for life, it comes in opposition to the fear to lose your life. So that was something incredible, <laughs> and really, how people are still trying to look pretty or how they're trying to just really value every moment or they're trying to really, like, truly enjoy the time with family. So, like, the meaning of very routine things has changed. That was really important to feel, I guess. So now that I'm back after my my trip to Ukraine and a few other places in Europe, I just want to like keep this feeling of solidarity with my people, obviously. But also it just re-inspired me to like keep talking about it because it's kind of like fading out in the news. People get used to, oh, yeah, that war is still happening. Yeah, okay. But this is the life for millions of people uh, affected. I, I don't have any like solid plans <laughs> for the future, but I'm I'm just still digesting my I guess my emotions from from the trip.
In late April, I watched the choir perform in a collaboration with another Ukrainian folk music ensemble who came to town for the event. Women's Bandura Ensemble is very unique because it's the first women's ensemble who play Bandura in North America, I think. And its members are from all over the place. We had people drive or fly from Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, New Jersey, New York, Toronto, too. And these are all places with diasporic Ukrainian populations. Yes, yes. yes. They partnered with the ensemble to host an open rehearsal so that the public could learn about both groups and raise awareness for Ukraine. People were able to ask questions, to touch an instrument if they uh, wanted to, and just to observe uh, this rehearsal like in a more informal setting. And then the next day, on Sunday, we had a performance in Indianapolis at the church. Also, people came from Ukrainian community or not, and that was also a way, as usual, to raise awareness and raise the money for humanitarian help. It was this synergy of just emotions and energy, like really an exchange of energy. We do work in slightly different styles, I would say, but that just showed the diversity of Ukrainian culture. Do you know what's next for the choir? Uh, is there any succession plan for the leadership? Do you think it will continue? I think it will continue because I value the community that was formed. And it's really hard to build that connection with people. And it's really easy to, to lose it. So, yes, I have some travel plans for this semester. But also, I'm sure that we will figure something out. We'll take turns leading the ensemble, I think it would be a great practice for some of our members. I don't have a concrete plan yet, but I'm sure that we'll figure it out. You can follow the choir on Instagram at Choir with underscores between each word. That story was produced by Violet Barron. Violet recently moved on from WFIU to become the executive director of Long Island Traditions. That's a nonprofit supporting folk and traditional arts and artists in New York. Wishing you luck in your new role, Violet. Hope it goes great. Okay, it's time for another break. And then we'll hear from a comedian about what he really meant when he told his future wife he loved nature. Stay with us. So I've done a number of stories on interstates about marriage. There was the story about the couple who had been married for 72 years and uh, just had a really nice life together. Uh, there was also the story about the couple who also has been married for quite a while now and decided when they had their wedding to get married using puppets. These are happy stories, but they're happy marriage stories. And, you know, I think usually when we think of marriage stories, we think happy. Divorce stories, on the other hand, we don't tend to think happy, and I've been wanting to get some good divorce stories on the show as well. Um, but happy divorce stories are apparently a little harder to find. Uh, but I am determined. One of these days— Alex, Alex, I, I've got your story, finally. I had to go all the way to Prague, but I have a story on divorce. Oh, my God, Avi, that's great. Yeah, it was amazing. Wait, so you went to Prague. How was it? Oh, um— Ooh, uh, my favorite part was the metropolitan area, which was 192 square miles. Wow, sounds lovely. Yeah, it was amazing. I know it was a massive expense, but really it was the only way I could properly do this story about divorce and about EJ. 
What did you like about EJ? Honestly, he's just a really cool dude. He's a research psychologist, but also a comedian. He's divorced, but he has kids. And he just has a lot of interesting reflections on comedy. Cool. Uh, let's get to it. Awesome. Let's do it. Hey there. Welcome to a small series called The Comedians, where we sit down with various funny people and talk about things from their perspective. Whenever I write a joke, I've, I've basically got a hypothesis, which is that this is going to make people laugh. And if they don't, well, that was not a supported hypothesis. This time we have comedian E.J. Masticampo, who's a researcher, a dad, and just a really cool person. I'm a psychology professor by day, and I'm on a research sabbatical this semester. So I was in London, and uh, on top of that, I decided to do some traveling while I'm out here, doing a bunch of shows all over Europe. So yeah, I've been, you know, doing psychology writing during the day, and then hanging out and doing comedy shows at night. I feel like the divorce is the best, one of the best things to ever happened to me. And, uh, and it wasn't even, it was her idea. Like, I, I did not see it coming at all. And, uh, and I would never have left her, but I'm so grateful that, that she ended it. I mean, I started comedy pretty late in life. I'd been a professor for close to 10 years, and I was married, and uh, she and I had two kids together. I was very enmeshed in, you know, family life. And she and I were, I didn't know at the time, we were going through the process of splitting up. So uh, we started spending a lot more time apart, and I was needing, honestly, I was just needing a new hobby I suddenly found all, I had a lot more time on my hands. I'm a real passive, I'm like, I tend to put other people first. So I spent the whole 12 years of our relationship doing what she liked to do. We used to go hiking all the time because she loved the outdoors. Early on in the relationship, like I told her, I, I also love the outdoors. But, I, you know, I meant from like a nice deck or, uh, you know, looking at the outdoors from a cool uh, brewery window or something. I haven't gone camping or hiking once in the three years since we've divorced. And, uh, and you said you're, you're glad she ended it? Yeah, I mean, for one, I would never have started comedy uh, if she didn't end it. So yeah, that was something that bothered me, was I, I had that same experience of getting divorced and feeling like people felt sorry for me or looked down on me because I got divorced, like I was lesser than for not being in my marriage anymore, having like failed at something. So, um, so I'm very motivated to talk a lot about how much this is actually a success and how staying in a marriage, um, or just how marriage in general is not for everyone is a bad idea uh, in a lot of cases. Do you still work with your wife or your ex-wife? Yes. Our, she's also a psychology professor, and our offices are, I want to say, 10 or 15 feet from each other. We work together, we're in, on committees together, we see each other all the time. It's, I mean, we were really good friends before we split up, so we already shared a lot of common interests. I mean, before we were, we were even dating, we were, we were good friends too. 
Yeah, I've gotten to like work happy hours where it ended up just being me and her because no one else showed up. So uh, we're very much still in each other's lives. We get along great. She comes to my comedy shows and sees me, you know, talking about her and our uh, our split. So, I mean, I think she keeps coming to the show, so she must like it and find it entertaining. I mean, she'll give me notes afterwards. She'll, you know, she'll be like, just kind of jokingly tell me, well, you know, it was a little bit like this, or uh, don't worry, I won't tell people how you actually felt about that thing, or whatever. And you have uh, kids together, right? Yeah, we've got two kids, uh, six and nine. What's it like just turning what we would perceive as negative things into comedy? Honestly, yeah, that's, I feel like that's the best part is taking, yeah, taking something that people see one way or people see as negative and uh, flipping, flipping it on its head and getting them to laugh about it because it feels like agreement, getting people to move a little bit. I think I like, because that's what I like most in comedy, is when a, a comedian can get me, get me to look at something differently or feel a different way about something in a way that is ex- expanding my perspective more. And if I can do that, that's, yeah, that is the best part of, at least one of the best parts of comedy to me is to get people to see things in a new light and uh, and to get that sort of agreement through laughter is great. Yeah, when you're going against what people typically think, yeah, you gotta find the right find the right angle angle, the right wording. So it's really easy. But uh, but yeah, when you nail it, it's just it's a fun process and very rewarding when you figure it out. What's the hardest negative thing you've turned into a joke? There are a lot of things I am still in the middle of having not figured out. Um, I talk about race a lot, and there, you know, I had to try a lot of different things to, to really get it right. I think there, a lot of that I haven't figured out yet. People don't realize this, but like, we don't. We aren't really a community. It, the Asian community is so diverse. It's forty. I think it's forty-nine different countries in Asia, and uh, people expect us to be this community. We're we get along, but we're not a community. We're we're an alliance. Honestly, we're together because we like we need each other. It's sort of a, a survival tactic. But uh, I haven't found the right way to, to talk about that. Because uh, it feels bad to like reject the rest of the Asian community and say we're natural enemies, but um, we are. I mean, we, you know, our history is conflict, not you know having these uh, potlucks on campus together that we're supposed to be having. And I saw that joke about hecklers and, and especially like racists about mm-hmm. like go back to Beijing, and you said like. Thank you. <laughs> I've gotten everything. I feel like, uh, yeah, I've been told to go back to China. I've had people mo- mo- do the mocking sort of Chinese-sounding voice to me, and um, yeah, it's not happening every day. But every once in a while, you get a, a crazy, crazy out of nowhere racist comment like that. Usually when it happens, the first thing is just shock or like it's so unexpected. You don't, you're not the, you're not insulted. You're just confused. You have to sort of walk away and be like, did that person actually say that thing? And then later, <laughs> later realize, yeah, they did. And then like, I feel like being insulted or uh, angry is like the fourth or fifth emotion you feel. And then... Yeah, and then much, much later, you, yeah, I feel like you can start to make jokes about it after you've, you've felt okay about it. People can tell when you don't yet feel okay about something. I've seen people, or myself, I try to 
tell divorce jokes the next day and the jokes were fine but i think it was so raw people just couldn't help but feel sorry for me they're like there's no way yeah you're clearly in pain um so uh yeah it does take processing it and becoming okay with it i think before you can really make it funny how does your experience with psychology sort of interact with all of this if anything yeah, in so many ways, I've already said that social psychologists just analyze, you know, everyday life, and uh, a lot of observational comedy is that. But also, as like a research psychologist, I'm just very used to experimentation. I, I mean, my, I have like a lab where we run experiments on people, and we test hypotheses, and we gather data, and then we revise our study is based on the incoming data, so joke writing honestly feels a lot like that. Whenever I write a joke, I've, I've basically got a hypothesis, which is that this is going to make people laugh. And then I, it's nice because I get my data right away, I get to tell the joke, I get to see people laugh, and if they don't, well, that was not a supported hypothesis, so then I get to revise, revise the joke and try again. I'm just imagining you like on a um, like a magazine cover, like in like a, a lab coat, like analyzing like a rubber chicken or something. <laughs> I like this idea that's of good. Like, that's like good. The, the joke that like joke is hypothesis or something. You know, being a teacher too, effective teaching is a lot about you know knowing how to communicate these complex ideas in a way that people are going to understand. Me, joke writing is a lot like that too. It's like you've you found something funny. If you think it's funny, you're never wrong. There is something funny there. You just got to communicate what you're experiencing to the audience in a way that they can also see it. So it's all about finding the right way to describe exactly what you're seeing is funny about this thing. So uh, I feel like teaching has helped me a lot with uh, being able to communicate as a comic. And honestly, I think that's hilarious. It's like a like a weird alternate universe Batman. If it's like his parents weren't murdered and he didn't, he wasn't a superhero. He just did like stand up <laughs> comedy and psychology. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think that's do people ever find that out and just like I don't know think that's hilarious. It's uh, it's an interesting combo for sure. Um. Yeah, they usually have questions about it. I don't know if they find it hilarious. That'd be uh, that'd be nice if they did, but um, it's pretty it's a pretty natural sort of transition as I put my uh, put my stand up comic uniform on at night and go out go out into the darkness. I did some research on your Google Scholar. It is not boring. I'm a massive research nerd. You have a you have like a really you have a link tree that says not really funny, um, Google Scholar. Oh right, right, right. Uh, I I don't know. Just the um, I see like studying like behavior and, and cognitive thought process and like, but also like secrecy, the burdens of secrecy, and yes. also how thoughts relate to action. I publish a lot on like self control, like how we manage our behaviors and on our temptations. Which is a very social thing. I mean, most self-control comes down to, like, taking all your animal impulses and forcing yourself to be, like, this civilized person in society. That takes a lot of effort. Still a lot of morality, like, how do we decide whether someone or their behaviors are good or bad. And, I've, yeah, I've studied secrecy a lot, just how, how secrets affect people, just the the felt burden of secrets, how it actually feels burdensome and it kind of weighs us down in interesting ways. I'm a social psychologist, which uh, I don't know if you, did you go to IU? Uh, oh, I'm a junior at IU right now. You're, you're going there now. Have you ever taken any psychology classes there? Uh, yeah. There's a great psych department. Yeah, I took a psychology course 101, and I, have a, I think I have, I've had a couple of friends who are studying psychology. Yeah, all right. Yeah, there's a great social psych group there, and uh, that's what I do. You know, it's just the psychology of just, like, everyday life and how people relate to other people, and... 
comedy is a lot of that. Observational comedy is just, you know, looking at looking at how we live, looking at relationships. Sort of analyzing them and breaking them down and um, yeah, I feel like I focus on a lot of the same things in the in like the classroom when I'm teaching as I do uh, on stage. So Like in all of this, you said that like the marriage ended well and like from what I've heard, the relationship with your kids is going well. It, it feels weird for me to say because I'm basically still a stranger. I just, for some reason, I know so many details about your life through your comedy, just listening to your stand up. But I, like I've definitely had friends or acquaintances or coworkers or whatever learn about me by coming to, you know, like an open mic or a show where I'm talking to a bunch of strangers, and they're, as a friend, learning things about me that I've never shared with them before. What's the uh, deepest thing you've shared um, on stage? I mean, yeah, I've gotten pretty vulnerable about my divorce. My divorce has been great. That's what a lot of my comedy is about. I'm very pro-divorce. I think just because, yeah, that's not something I've often talked even to my family about. That has felt like one of the more vulnerable topics. So which ends up being harder? Like, you're being a psychology professor, being a stand-up comedian? <laughs> oh, I mean, they're both hard. You know, one thing, another thing that's similar about both of them is there's so much rejection in both. Because as a scientist, it's it's rough publishing. I don't know if you've heard the phrase publish or perish, but, you know, to be a good scientist, you're supposed to be running these innovative studies and writing these papers that you then publish in these journals and... Uh, you have to go through this peer review process where usually what happens is they send your paper to these other scientists and they just completely destroy and tear apart your work. They say their job is to say everything that's wrong about it. And they'll, I just got one of these the other day. It's just 12 pages of single space, just line after line. And here's what's wrong with this study. And here's why your ideas are bad. And here, and it's so painful. And I mean, it's similar in comedy, like before any joke really gets to the place where you're seeing it in a special or on late night, it's just crashing and burning. People aren't insulting you to your face, but they're just giving you these blank stares and just not laughing at all at these jokes that you thought were so funny. And that is equally painful. Um, comedy's nice because the feedback's immediate and in psychology, you'll like work for years on a project and then have it be torn apart to, you know, to shreds. And I guess I want to ask some closing questions that are a little more open-ended and just more in general. Like, uh, what's something people don't see when when you're performing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's the long history of the joke before I got there, all the times it failed and all the times you tweaked it. And then every comic, when they're performing too, they're in their heads adjusting all the time. That's another fun thing about comedy is you're constantly adjusting your set. If you're doing it well, you're adjusting based on what's happening in the room, based on what's getting a laugh, how people are reacting. You might notice certain things aren't working so well, so you might, in your head, start dropping these jokes that you're planning on doing later or deciding to do new ones that you think will work well uh, based on how people are reacting. Yeah, and then, you know, just paying attention to what's happening in the room, responding to it um, in kind, preparing, yeah, preparing to respond to it later. There is a lot of that um, happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy mix of being prepared with jokes that you've written and know verbatim and then being able to change those on the fly based on what's happening in your set. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um, thanks for talking to me. This is, yeah, this is a lot of fun.